All right, it's time for us to get our second session underway tonight. We sure appreciate everyone's presence. Come on in. Make yourself at home. Glad to have those of you that are visitors. Kyle's going to bring us another lesson to, related to the inspiration of Scripture. And uh, the theme for this hour will be predictive prophecy. Just a couple of announcements. Uh, Brendan's going to lead us in prayer after the first song. By the way, 301 is the, is the song we're going to be singing. Brendan will lead us in prayer. Uh, following that song, and uh, Rodney White was admitted to the hospital last night with uh, chest pains, severe chest pains, and he was taken to Springfield this morning for further test, and he is in the uh, Mercy Hospital in Springfield. We'll post the uh, information on the bulletin board uh, for your uh, uh, further uh, information. Uh, Brian Dickey's here tonight, Brother Brian now. He was baptized last night uh, after uh, services. Uh, Brian is a friend of the White and Martin families. He's been attending here for several weeks, months, and uh, he's been uh, studying the Bible, and we're very happy, Brian, for your decision to obey the gospel. Wonderful to have you as a brother in Christ. Don't forget fellowship dinner tomorrow morning after the morning worship. And we will have our regular 6 o'clock service tomorrow night for those of you that are members of the congregation here. We're looking forward, Kyle, to another lesson tonight. Thank you, brother. And uh, don't forget Bible class in the morning at uh, the regular time, 9.30. Kyle will be speaking. And again at the uh, worship hour at 10.20. All right, grab a songbook. Brother Rex is going to lead us. Three oh one. Let's do one, two, and five. I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me, how he left his home in glory for the cross of Calvary. Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story. Of the Christ to die for me. Sing it with the saints in glory. Gathered by the crystal sea. I was lost, but Jesus found me. Found the sheep that went astray. Through his loving arms around me. Drew me back into his way. Yes, I sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory gathered by the crystal sea. He will keep me till the river rolls its waters at my feet. Then he'll bear me safely over where the loved ones I shall meet. Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. 
sing it with the saints in glory, gathered by the crystal sea. Please bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and thank you for the blessings that you've given to us. And thank you for Brother Kyle and his ability to preach your word to us and his ability to make it clear for us to understand. And we thank you for all the many blessings that you've given to us. And please continue to bless us through our lives. And please be with the rest of this meeting that goes on through this weekend. And please let it impact the hearts of others. And please let us not keep it to ourselves, but share it throughout the world. And we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Please mark 356, 356 for an invitation song. We have that mark turned to 415, 415. saying one, two, and four. More about Jesus would I know, more of His grace to others show, more of His saving fullness see, more of His love who died for me, more, more about Jesus, more, more about Jesus. More of His saving fullness see, more of His love who died for me. More about Jesus let me learn, more of His holy will discern. Spirit of God my teacher be, showing the things of Christ to me. More, more about Jesus. More, more about Jesus, more of His saving fullness see, more of His love who died for me. More about Jesus on His throne, riches and glory all His own, more of His kingdom sure increase, more of His coming Prince of Peace. More, more about Jesus, more, more about Jesus, more of His saving fullness see, more of His love who died for me. On September the 11th, 2001, that was an infamous day in the history of the United States of America. On that day, terrorists hijacked several planes, flew two of them into the Twin Towers, causing the Twin Towers to collapse. If you have been to the Ground Zero area in New York, you maybe have seen the new museum. There it is stunning and Something certainly to see. What I find very interesting about the events following 9-11, 
for two days, approximately, if I understand correctly, there was one name that was searched for more than any word on the Internet for the two days following September 9-11. Now, generally speaking, one word is always the most searched for. It was not for these two days. It was the name of a man. If I were to ask you the name of what man, you might say Osama bin Laden. But it was not Osama bin Laden's name that was the most searched for name on the Internet for the day or two following the September 11 attacks. No, instead it was a man by the name of Nostradamus. Nostradamus supposedly was an ancient prophet. Supposedly he could predict the future, and rumor had it that he had predicted the fall of the Twin Towers because he had supposedly predicted the fall of the Twin Towers more people in the world typed in his name than typed in any other name on the Internet for two days following because they wanted to know if he really had predicted this event. Now, it just so happened that Nostradamus Quatrains are not predictive prophecy at all, and what supposedly was a prediction of the destruction of the ten Twin Towers was taken from several different parts of his writings and meshed together to try to make it look like he had predicted the future. And the National Enquirer got a lot of mileage out of it, but when the rubber met the road, he had made a couple vague statements that could have applied to anything, well, not anything, but a number of things in the last 200 years that certainly weren't a prediction about the Twin Towers. But think about this. Why... Would it be so interesting to people if Nostradamus actually had predicted the future? Why would that be something of note? Well, you and I both understand exactly why that would be something of note. If there was a person who could actually predict the future, things that were going to happen hundreds of years before he, after rather, he ever died we would understand that that's something superhuman, that that's something supernatural, that human beings don't have the power to do that. And in fact, that is the case. Human beings don't have the power to do that. And if you could find a person or a book or some writings that actually did have the power to do that, then you'd be dealing with what we all know to be superhuman writings. They would have had to have some divine information. Well, you know, as we look at that, Deuteronomy 18, 20, 1 and 22, the Bible says there, And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, then that's the thing which the Lord hadn't spoken. You know what? If a person says this is going to happen in the future, and I'm telling you this from God, and in the future it doesn't happen, guess what? That person wasn't speaking from God. Real easy to understand. Now, watch what God says in Isaiah to the idols. He says, number one, let them bring forth and show us what will happen or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. You know, lots of times the idol worshipers would say, yeah, our gods are just as powerful as Jehovah. And Isaiah said, okay, let's just have a little contest here. Why don't you just tell us what's going to happen in the future? 
my God can tell you what's going to happen in the future. If your gods are really gods, they should be able to do the same. If they can't do the same, then guess what? They're not. They're not gods. So we're seeing a divine criteria here for inspiration. Does the Bible contain things that accurately foretold and continue to foretell the future? Let me introduce you to a city known as Tyre. You've probably read about the city of Tyre. Lots of times it's lumped in with another city called Sidon, Tyre and Sidon. The Old Testament city of Tyre is not the same as the New Testament city of Tyre. And we're going to see that. Now, lots of times you'll have a city that many different places will be named that. In fact, if I were to say, hey, let's go to Nashville. Nashville what? You know there's a Nashville, Tennessee. If I understand it, there's a Nashville, Kentucky. Is there a Nashville, Missouri? I think there are about five different Nashvilles in various different states. They're all named Nashville. And you couldn't say, hey, because one Nashville is here and another Nashville is here, you'd have to know exactly which Nashville the person was talking about. And it just so happens, in 1200 B.C., a city by the name of Tyre began to rise to importance. In fact, one of the best natural ports in the Mediterranean Sea this city of Tyre stood at the crossroads of worldwide trading, became one of the most well-known cities in all of the world because various different people would stop at this city to trade and to get their ships rigged out to continue on. Ezekiel the prophet talks about the city of Tyre. And here's what he says. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of splendor. You defiled the sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. He says, you guys sin, Tyre. And because of that sin, something's going to happen to you. And so in Ezekiel chapter 26, here's what we read. We read that Nebuchadnezzar is going to destroy the city of Tyre. There in verse 8. Then we read that he's going to build a siege mound around the city, and we read that many nations would then come up against Tyre. The city would be flattened like the top of a rock. Its stones and timber and soil would be laid in the sea, and it's going to be a place where men spread nets. Now, when Ezekiel was making this prophecy in 580-something B.C., there would have been a couple things that were rather remarkable about this. Number one, in ancient destruction of cities, what do you generally never do with the city stuff that you destroy? I mean, it's still good stuff. You go in, you wipe out the city, you kill the inhabitants, but you kind of want to build a city there so that you can start a oh, trading company just like Tyre was. And so you don't throw all the stuff in the ocean. You keep it, you rebuild it, and you put your own people in. Do you remember what happened when Nebuchadnezzar went into Jerusalem and Judah and pulled all of the people out of Judah? What did he do? Tear down all the stuff and get rid of it? No, you remember. He took all the Israelites and he replaced them with Babylonians. Well, that's what you would do most of the time. You wouldn't rip it down and throw it into the ocean. In fact, what would the labor cost of ripping this stuff down and throwing it into the ocean be? Well, that's just something that didn't go on much in the ancient world. In fact, you could probably count on one hand, maybe about three fingers, how many cities the size of Tyre have ever been ripped down and completely thrown into the sea. 
Now, let's look at what history tells us happened to Tyre. Ezekiel's writing in about 580-something B.C., maybe 605 or so before that, between 600 and 580 or so, and the city's going to never be rebuilt. Ezekiel 29. Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to labor strenuously against Tyre. Every head was made bald, every shoulder rubbed raw, yet neither he nor his army received wages from Tyre for the labor that they expended on. Well, let me tell you what happened. Secular history records this happening. Nebuchadnezzar came up against Tyre, sieged Tyre, was fighting against Tyre for months on end, but it just so happened that the Tyrians, as they were called, had an island about three-quarters of a mile off the coast where they moved all of their stuff. Nebuchadnezzar, after I think it was about 14 months, breaks into the mainland city of Tyre expecting to have defeated all of them, and he looks around and nobody's there. He looks out three-quarters of a mile into the ocean and realizes, hey, they've moved everything they've got out to the island city of Tyre. And so Nebuchadnezzar got no payoff for his surrounding the city. Do you know that for the next, oh, you're looking at about 250 years or so, the Tyrians, even after Nebuchadnezzar, they were able to move back in after Nebuchadnezzar moved off. And for about 250 years, they still remained a very prominent city. Until a guy that you might recognize by the name of Alexander the Great came along. In 333 B.C., Alexander the Great was about 33 years old. Maybe you'll recall how the story is told that he fell on his knees and wept because there was no more nations, there were no more nations to conquer. He had conquered the entire world. Well, he came up against the city of Tyre, just exactly like Ezekiel said, many nations will come up against the city of Tyre. Ezekiel predicted that Nebuchadnezzar would, and then many nations would. And Alexander the Great besieges the mainland city of Tyre, Destroys it just exactly like Nebuchadnezzar did. Got in there and there were no people because they had gone out to the island nation, island city. Now, you don't conquer the then known world by giving up very easily. So he goes and looks and sees this island city there about three quarters of a mile out. And he says, you know what we'll do? We'll just build us a bridge. Where are we going to get the stuff to build a bridge out to that island city? Looks around, thinks, I'll tell you what we could do. If we ripped every single thing up out of this city and we dumped it all into the ocean, we could probably build us a, a causeway, they called it, from this mainland city to that island city, and we could probably take it. So that's what he started doing. Took him about eight or nine months, and within eight or nine months, he had scraped the entire mainland city of Tyre completely clean and built a land bridge causeway out to that island city the water started, after the fact, pouring sand and all kinds of debris and silt on the area so that the mainland city of Tyre was around here somewhere, but we have no idea where the mainland city of Tyre was. just so happened that every single one of the stones and the rocks and the soil was scraped clean and dumped into the Mediterranean Sea. And that happened in 333 
B.C., some 250 years after Ezekiel prophesied that it would. Now, when you present that to someone who doesn't believe that the Bible's inspired, and it's so very accurate, 250 years after it's written, what do they have to say about Ezekiel? You can't say Ezekiel's wrong. Now, some skeptics have tried to say, well, he just missed it, he got it wrong. There's no possible way you can actually say that he's wrong. In fact, so many of them recognize that you can't say that he's wrong. What then do they say? Well, he didn't write in 586 or 600 B.C. He was actually writing after Alexander the Great. You know the problem with them saying he was actually writing after Alexander the Great? Number one, they have to admit that he was exactly right, and that's why they changed the date. And number two... Ezekiel was very specific about when he was writing. And when you look at all of the statements that he made and the way that he made them, according to the rules of evidence, if you apply them to the book of Ezekiel, he is writing in the exact time that he says he was. And the only reason you would ever post-date it is because it's so ridiculously right. And if you were to present it in a court of law by the rules of common evidence it would be deemed as having been written in 600 B.C. Now, how is that? You know, if you thought Nostradamus got a few real vague facts right about the fall of the Twin Towers, if you're looking at Ezekiel chapter 26, he didn't get a few vague facts right. He nailed it with sniper-like precision. And that just simply doesn't happen by accident. I'm going to move through Tyre. We've got some more on that, but I'm going to get to the fall of Babylon. Now, if you know anything about the city of Babylon, which you probably don't, I didn't really until I started doing this lesson, so, you know, don't worry about it if you don't. Here's what happened, though. Babylon was one of the greatest cities in all of ancient history. In fact, the hanging gardens in Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The walls of Babylon in some places were 300 feet now, I've got a pretty good perspective on that, having ridden the outlaw run today, which was 162 feet high, and I was looking straight down, wondering what was going to happen when we hit the bottom. That took all of, what, 0 0.02 seconds for us to span the 162 feet, but 162 feet is 16 stories. 10 feet a story, approximately, is what you got. Now, double that to 300, just about double, not quite. And you've got a 30-story building high, and that's how high the walls were around the city of Babylon. Now, in some places, they were 75 feet thick so that you could drive three chariots abreast across them at the same time. So 75 feet thick, that's going to be... I don't know. Something, how many yards is that approximately? Three, 20, 25 yards. 25 yards? Yeah. All right. So you're looking at 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Okay, probably from about that wall back there all the way in the back to here would be about 75 feet or so. That's how thick the walls around Babylon were. For someone to say anybody's going to take the city of Babylon was almost like a joke. Yeah, I mean, you'll do that when the city of Babylon falls. It just wasn't going to happen. Nobody thought it could. 
not only did it have 300 feet walls with 75 feet thickness to them, but the Euphrates River was flowing around it like a natural moat. They had designed it so that some of the Euphrates River flowed under the city so that, hey, if anybody's sieging it, what's the biggest problem? Your biggest problem is water, but if you've got a whole humongous river flowing under your city, no problem at all, is it? And then the redirected part of the Euphrates River formed a natural moat around the walls so that, yeah, they're 300 feet high and 75 feet thick, but you can't really even get to them because the Euphrates River is flowing around And so you've got the greatest natural river moat ever designed around any city in all of ancient history, plus you got the biggest walls. And you got the most well-trained army. And the idea that somebody's going to take the city of Tyre is just about borderline ridiculous. city of Babylon, rather, is just about borderline ridiculous. And so as you start looking at this, you just think, 260 feet wide moat? It's just not going to happen. But as you look at the prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah, Israel's like scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First, the king of Assyria devoured him. Now at last, this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'm going to punish the king of Babylon and his land as I've punished the king of Assyria. He says, guess what? Babylon's about to get there. Well, nobody at the time when this statement was being made could have given anything to Babylon. There just wasn't anybody that could attack Babylon. As you look at Babylon's pride, Babylon says, I shall be like a lady forever I am. There's no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. Jeremiah's prophecy, he said the city's going to be taken by the king of the Medes and that a drought would be upon her waters and God would dry up her sea and her guardians would be drunken and sleep a perpetual sleep. Now, let's tell you what ancient secular history has to say. Maybe you'll remember the king of the Medes, Darius, the king of the Medes that you read about in the book of Daniel. Darius came up to Babylon, couldn't see a way in. Studied it and studied it and studied it, and then thought, do you know what we might could do? If we redirect the entire Euphrates River away from the city, then we could send some people under the hole where the river goes into Babylon. The problem was, if you sent people into that hole, it was so small that the Babylonians could defend it no problem if they were paying attention. So Darius has thousands and thousands and thousands of his soldiers dig a huge, basically, canal. And when he gives the signal, they knock the rest of the canal out and they redirect the entire Euphrates River into a lake basin to the west. Then he has his soldiers dress up like drunken revelers. Because it just so happened the Babylonians were sitting in their city hardly guarding it at all because they thought it was impregnable. They thought no one could take Babylon, and so they weren't paying any attention. Secular history explains to us that they were having a drunken festival at the time that Darius redirected the Euphrates River. And so his army goes into the city of Babylon through that hole where the water was pouring up 
the city of Babylon's sea dried up. The army would be drunken and sleep a perpetual sleep. And every single thing that Jeremiah and Isaiah said was going to happen to the city of Babylon happened to everybody in the ancient world's dismay. Folks, it just so happens that if you were to look for more valid proof of the inspiration of the Bible than predictive prophecy, there's just not any more valid proof. Now, there is some that's equal to it, like the perfect history and the scientific foreknowledge that will deal with the accuracy that... But the predictive prophecy of the Bible is beyond anything that any person has ever seen in any other writing or with any other human spokesman. And what I mean by human spokesman is you've got a person like Isaiah who says that there's going to come a servant and he's going to be a suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and he is going to be crucified or he's going to die with robbers, but he's then going to be buried with the rich at his death. Micah explains that he's going to be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah. You know what's interesting about Bethlehem Ephrathah was there was two, one Bethlehem to the north and one Bethlehem to the south. Bethlehem Ephrathah was the one to the south, which is the one we read about in Matthew where Jesus, the Messiah, was born. As you look at the betrayal price of Jesus, Zechariah notes that it's going to be for 30 pieces of silver. You read about the conduct of what the Messiah is going to, how he's going to behave at his trial, how he's going to die, how he's going to be buried. You know, people have tried to say, well, Jesus was just a master manipulator. He read all the Old Testament prophecies and he just tried to arrange his life around them. Really, good luck trying to arrange where you're born. Good luck trying to arrange how you die and who buries you. You know, there are entire books written on the Messianic prophecy. I've got an entire 55-minute lesson on Messianic prophecy. And it's just one tiny aspect of the prophecy that's involved in the predictive prophecy in the Bible. Now let's get real here. The Bible always is exactly right when it predicts what's going to happen in the future. Always. And when you go to Second Peter and you look in chapter 3, and the Bible explains that the day the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. You know what's going to happen? Sometime in the future that we don't know when because it's going to happen as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is going to come. You might be riding down the road. You might be out feeding your cows. You might be watching a movie. You might be sitting at a Mexican restaurant eating cheese dip. I don't know what you're going to be doing. You might be dead. The Lord might not come back for another 200, 300, 400 years. But at some time in the future, Jesus Christ is coming back 
And you know what the text says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8? He's coming back with His holy angels in flaming fire to take vengeance on those who do not know God and those who have not obeyed the gospel. Now listen to me. If the Bible is always right about everything it ever has said, when it says Tyre is going to be destroyed and scraped clean like a rock, and all its timber and stones are going to be cast into the sea, that happens. When it says Babylon is going to be taken by the king of the Medes, that happens. When it says that Jesus Christ is coming back in flaming fire to take vengeance on those who know not God and who have not obeyed the gospel, guess what? It's going to happen. You know why God showed you all of that predictive prophecy and brought you to this point? Because He wants you to understand when He says something is going to happen, it always happens. Always. Without fail. So what's that mean? And more specifically, what's it mean to you? Well, it means if you have not obeyed the gospel and tonight or tomorrow or the next day were the day of the Lord, then God's vengeance, God's vengeance would be against you. But there's another promise, another accurate prediction that God has made. And that accurate prediction says that though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, there is a chance to be redeemed and to be placed in the saving body of His church. Even so, baptism does also now save us. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. You know how you can obey the gospel? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-3, through 3, the Bible explains to us exactly what the gospel is. Paul says, now I am giving to you, Corinthians, what I received, that Jesus Christ died according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the Gospel. Now how in the world do you obey the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? You know you find that out in Romans chapter 6? Romans chapter 6, the Bible says, Don't you know as many of us as have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into His death? And therefore, just as Christ was raised from death, so you shall be raised as a new creature. You die to your sins by repenting. You are buried with Christ in water baptism, at which point you contact His blood, the only thing that can ever forgive a sin. And then you come out of that watery grave of baptism as a new creature. And Jesus makes you a promise. He says, you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then surely I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know that? It's a promise about the future, isn't it? It's a promise that Jesus Christ won't break. When Jesus says something's going to happen in the future, it happens. If you have obeyed the Gospel, you're going to get to be with Jesus. If you haven't, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-8 tells us that the vengeance of the Lord is coming on. You don't want that. 
just like if you were in the city of Tyre and you were listening to Ezekiel and you understood that he was an inspired prophet, you wouldn't want to be in Tyre when that happened. Do you need to change your spiritual condition tonight so that you're on the right side of God's future prediction? If you do, I hope you will as we stand and as we say. Why from the sunshine of love with the Rome, Father, I 